so, Keith, for the first thing I'd like to do is to congratulate you for actually going and doing a mini retreat on your own like that. That's good. And the second thing to congratulate you is that you're actually getting some success. That's amazing. You would be surprised at how many people spend how much time meditating and they ain't got no satisfaction. Yeah. Is that a Rolling Stone song? <laughs> yeah, so that's... Um, yeah, I'll let you use the word awesome. In the sense of uh, uh, awe-inspiring. Or, oh, I got it. Okay, so that's how we mean is, is awesome as opposed to the Western uh, normal way of, uh, uh, of using it. So now um, you said that if you could get into that state and, and stay there, that you'd die happy. Well, actually, the goal of dying happy is a very good uh, way of looking at it that no matter how obstructed the mind gets at the point of death, I can clean it out and watch the process of dying happily. That would be nice. Well, what prevents you from doing that? You forget. Yeah, and then what happens? Let the hindrances come in. They take Which over. Hindrance and which hindrance in particular is going to be coming in <laughs> at the point of death? Fear. <laughs> Fear. Yeah. Exactly. That's an important point, because if you recognize that the fear is the one thing that makes... Uh, in fact, you can see that uh, the self-preservation instinct that has been keeping you alive and keeps everybody alive at the point of death, the, the uh, uh, self-preservation instinct is actually for the first time failing. It's been successful, kept you alive all of this time, but now at the point of death, it's actually going to fail. It's not going to be able to do its job. Right. Okay. And that we also understand from many, many quarters that at the point of death, when something it is in death throes, the very worst comes out. Okay, like a cornered animal. Exactly, yeah. Okay. That, uh, uh, that mice can get really, really vicious. If they're only in the the mouse trap caught by the tail, <laughs> yeah. But they're caught, and they know they're going to die, and they will bite. <laughs> okay. Another example is, uh, though it's not actually death in a way that it feels like a death, that Donald Trump is losing the election. He's lost the election. He's failed. He's a loser. Okay, and for him, that's been for many people, that's kind of a death. The death of his presidency and perhaps the death of his freedom. So uh, we can see that people at that point uh, bring out their worst 
as the, you know, the last ditch effort of all of the crap that the um, <clears throat> self-preservation instinct has thrown up, uh, uh, wrongly thinking that we were in danger when in fact we were not. When we're actually, actually in danger, that's when the um, uh, self-preservation instinct will do its worst. But it thinks it needs to keep practicing in all these irrelevant situations. Uh-huh. So the idea is, is then that means that if I can uh, calm this self-preservation instinct over uh, many, let us say, false positives, that we can clean up that hindrance and come back to the present moment over and over and over again, then we will be able to do that at that one point in time when we really, really need it the most. Keep when calming it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. To keep uh, uh, throwing out the hindrances, calming the mind back down, allowing that uh, the fear uh, is a relic of our prehistoric past. And that that fear instinct or that uh, uh, reptilian brain that we have in the back of the head, uh, the posterior cortex, um, operates very fast. It has to for survival. In other words, if, uh, if you see an alligator flying through the air about to pounce on you, you'd better react quickly. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so this is what a lot of um, uh, the reptilian brain does. However, to take a thorough investigation, to look closely at what's going on and figuring things out, takes a little bit longer than a quick reaction. Which means that we need to have our sati coming up pretty quick. So that we can take a look, to wake up quickly and take a look, rather than letting the reptilian brain operate in its normal fashion of when anything comes up, it's the first, it's the first kid out of bed. (laughs) Yeah, I find myself like checking in a lot, sort of like looking, it's like Sati again, like, let's see, like, is there anything here? And then it's, it's Mm -hmm. nice when you, when you see like, there's no hindrances, but you know, it's like continue, continuously looking. Is that how you sort of train that? Mm-hmm. Well, not, we use words differently than continuous. Continuous has a word that, uh, or has a meaning that is fraught with the possibility of failure. In other words, if it's continuous, but you have a tiny little gap in it, then somehow that's not continuous. Right. All right. And so that's setting ourselves up for failure. A much, much better way of looking at it is the quality of unremitting. Okay. Unremitting. An example of that is playing a drum. Okay. Do you play a drum with a mallet 
consistently. In other words, here's the drum head and here's the mallet. Is this the way you play the drum? No. No. <laughs> no, but what you can do is you can play the drum intermittently, but consistently or um, uh, unremittingly. Okay, so this is the kind of way that we want to use sati. It's kind of like beating the drum, the wake-up call, uh, and uh, we want to make it kind of musical. Aha! I got it. Oh, it's awesome. Okay, this is the yeah. way that we want to start looking at it and, and uh, bring that sati back very, very quickly because otherwise the reptilian brain will uh, do its natural instinctual function. And most people live their lives most of the time instinctually. And that part of this instinctual behavior, um, there's a term for it to use, confirmation bias. Have you ever heard of the word confirmation bias? Yeah. In other words, when we have a bias, when we have an ignorance, but we can find other people or other things that will confirm that ignorance, then we'll use that to support our ignorance. And so we tend to throw out evidence that's against it while we search for evidence that will confirm it. Okay, this is exactly the way that the reptilian brain works. Any evidence at all, and off it goes. <clears throat> Even if it's a false alarm, a false positive. And we yeah. got used to doing that false positive way, way, way back when. Here's an example of it. You and I, with our loincloth and our spears, are hopping down a bunny trail or a deer uh, path uh, as prehistoric men on the hunt. And there's a rustle behind in the in the woods we can hear a noise behind mm -hmm. one of us takes off and starts running immediately the other one turns around to see what it was it might be our sister it might be our daughter it might be a friend guess which one if it's a predator guess which one of us gets eaten the one who looked the one who turned around and looked. So in very, very primitive times, a full-on investigation was often not timely. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it was a survival instinct to run. Well, what caused the guy to run? The sound. Fear. Fear, yeah. Because the other guy heard the sound, and he turned around to see what it was. Yeah. So it wasn't the sound that made him run. It was something inside of him that he did that made him run. Mm -hmm. Okay. What was it? It was fear. Okay. So you extrapolate that in our uh, whole species. And you can see that nowadays we live in a society that's fairly safe. I mean, you just look around where you are and you don't see any alligators, no gorillas, there's no pythons, there's no uh, 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 mafia dudes, there's nobody there. And yet, 
the instinctual fear that we were born with and raised in with our DNA and children spend a lot of time in fear unnecessarily because of this instinct that in fact has been known a long time that uh, uh, when a when a baby human being is born it is born as an animal an undeveloped animal but a wild animal and so the whole idea then of taming that wild animal is is left to uh, an unwise culture. And that unwise culture means that the mistakes that our parents made with us as children, we're tending to make those same mistakes with our own kids. And that one of the things that we do is, is that we continue to pass on fear in a place where there should be no fear, inappropriate. So, can I ask you a question about the sati? Yes. That topic. Um, so I was just going to ask, because like you said, that the sati is like a playing a drum. It's constantly coming back, unremitting. That's where you want to get it to. Does it come to a point where maybe like each sati like drum tap that you do resonates more? So like it's just like a louder tap or like lasts longer? Or is it just a matter of it getting faster and faster? Actually, both. Okay. Here is a clear example in, in that regard. When you wake up in the morning in your bed, what do you do? What's the very first thing that happens when you wake up in the morning in your bed? Um, try and go back to bed. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. And for some, that means to turn the alarm off. Mm -hmm. For others, it would be to experience the bed. But the one thing that generally does not happen in normal society is when you wake up, you get up. That's unlikely to happen. It does happen in certain situations. An example of that is in, <laughs> is in boot camp. Mm -hmm. Right. The drill instructor comes in at five uh, minutes to six a.m. before the bugle goes off and he's got his baton and he starts baiting that baton on the wall and on somebody's rack. And he says, all right, all hands on deck. Well, I was in the Navy, so that's what the D.I. says. Uh, and guess what? Everybody wakes up and jumps up and gets out of their rack and stands at attention immediately. What would happen if you, the, the normal way that you would sleep and wake up in the morning, if you were in fact were in boot camp and you'd behave the same way, what would the drill instructor do? Would he pick you out and, 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 and run his number on you? Yeah. Yeah. And everybody knows that. And so that wake up call, that wakey wakey means to really wake up. Okay. Mm -hmm. There is another one. And that is, is that uh, the Zen stick, you probably heard about the Zen stick. Basically, the Zen stick is a piece of bamboo, slender bamboo that they have slit and made a slit in it. And in fact, uh, I shaved out some of it so that when the, uh, when the bamboo hits, the two pieces slap together, making a noise. And so is in, uh, and so the noise of the Zen stick is independent of how hard the guy's getting hit. 
Now, here's the question. Who gets hit with the Zen stick? The guy who's slouching. The guy who is not aware that the DI is in the room or the Zen master is in the room. He does not know the Zen master is in the room. He's the one who gets hit. Everyone else is, is uh, aware that the Zen master is in the room with his Zen stick. And so they sit up just a little bit. They will, they will come to a little bit of attention. Okay. Now, later in the practice, the Zen master is actually going to come into the dormitory with his Zen stick. Two in the morning, three in the morning. Guess who he's going to hit? The guy who's the sleeping. The same dude, the guy who doesn't know he's in the room. Everybody else has got the job to wake up. How do they know the way to wake up if they're sleeping? They need to be alert to that. That, in fact, he's probably going to sneak in and do it quietly. And they still need to wake up or get hit. So do they just sleep very lightly? That's, well, no, it's the other way around. They, uh, uh, the good practitioner learns to sleep deeply, but to come out of it immediately. Mm, okay. To wow. wake up. To really wake up, okay? Now, normally what happens is, is that when people are asleep and they're kind of half dreaming or in a dream state, then if a noise happens in the room or um, something on the outside, they will incorporate that into their dream. Mm -hmm. They will just add it to the dream without actually waking fully up. Right. I okay. had an experience this morning, kind of, which was just like, I had great sleep. But what I noticed is that, like, when I, when I try and go back to bed, I'll end up having, like, I try and go back to bed. Once I try and go back to bed, I'll end up having, like, these, uh, these dreams where I've heard them, like, described as, like, maybe hypnotic. I don't know if that's, like, the same thing, but, like, these really weird dreams. And, like, I'm kind of, like, in my bed, and it kind of seems like real life. But but it's not. But like I know because I'm like I, I'm like in my bed like in the dream and I can like hear people talking and like that's, that's not really happening and like I'll get up I can't really can't really function but I'm not really up I'm in bed. I just thought that was an interesting thing. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, what happens normally with students and you saying that you're getting. Um, a bit past this already and congratulations one of the things that happens though with people is when they're sitting in meditation and sati arises it only arises enough to where they can see that the mind is in hindrances and then they go right back into hindrances with the idea of oh this meditation is hard oh the monkey mind oh i may not be practicing correctly all right and so yep. we kind of half wake up. It's like waking up in bed, but not getting out of bed. We wake up to the hindrances, but we don't wake up enough to get out of them. And so there are actually now various levels of sati. That the mind can be bright, it can be exalted, it can be dull, it can be scattered, it can be collected. 
all of these different types of minds that uh, that you can have, that needs to be investigated. What What's the condition of the mind right now? Is it sharp or is it dull? Are you tired or are you uh, fully awake? And start to watch the fact that the mind and the body is going through changes throughout the day. All the time, things are constantly in motion, constantly changing. And and yet, if we think, harder, go ahead. I'll say it, it was definitely harder to wake up to hindrances, like, in the morning, or even when I'm in bed, like, you know, when you just wake up, and you think maybe, okay, like, sometimes when I wake up, things aren't so great. Like, it's like, you know, I'm having all these hindrance, hindering, hindering thoughts coming in. I think I can just push them out. But if I'm not really awake yet, it's very difficult to do that. Okay. Um, as we learn to clean out the mind many times during the day, generally what's happening in sleep, and we'll have a whole long talk about uh, how to practice um, when you're in bed. But I will say that people who have a lot of hindrances and worries during the day will be the ones who have mostly dreams or have most of the dreams at night. And so if you wake up with a mind really full of hindrances, that means that you probably woke up from dreaming. And so the right way to prepare is before you go to sleep, is to go to sleep with a mind that's free and empty. It won't have much dreaming. And when you get up in the morning, it'll be free from hindrances, and you can wake up easier. Okay. Okay, so practicing your Anapanasati that you're already practicing while you're in bed with the idea, you see a lot of people get worried, oh, I've got to sleep, oh, I've got work to do tomorrow, oh, I've got to do this, that, and the other thing, and then they'll spend their time in bed thinking about all the stuff that they've got to do. And they don't go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And so they, because they're thinking about the day tomorrow, they, they're uh, wasting time or not getting the very sleep that they hopped into bed claiming that they demanded. <coughs> so it really has to do with the quality of sleep, not necessarily the time duration. So if you can get your mind in a relaxed, comfortable state, then the kind of thoughts is, oh, I've got no place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. I can just lay here and enjoy this moment. And just lay here and just enjoy, just empty the mind and just breathe and let sleep come naturally. And so this is a way of, of doing it. But let's get back to the idea then that Sati has both a slow and a quick quality, and also it has an amount or a degree quality. And that what we're looking for is to really to wake up fully so that we can, in fact, come out of the hindrances. Now, most people are um, in, a, in the kind of state where they, when their sati, when they first start practicing, their sati is not quite up to it. And so um, they will in fact, uh, continue with the hindrances even though they wake up to them. Um, this actually leads to the fact that what we're practicing here 
is actually something that can be used throughout all of our lives, whatever that life is. And so in that regard, I'm going to give you a new definition of the word stupid. Okay. A new definition of the word stupid is, is that someone will know that this is wrong mm-hmm. and they will do it anyway. And so most sati for the beginner is a stupid sati because they know that they're waking up and should come out of the hindrances, but they fall right back into them. And one of the ways that that happens is because we're critical of ourselves. So going back to that constant or consistency idea that if you break that, then the critical mind will say, ha ha, you did wrong there. Now, we get into the habit of being critical with ourselves a lot because our parents were critical of us and our teachers are critical of us. That When we're first newborns, we require a lot of nurturing. We can't change our own diaper. We can't feed ourselves. We're just little dudes. We can't crawl onto the furniture and all of that kind of stuff. So in the beginning, um, in kind of also the brain is not fully developed we can't use our hands very well and other things like that so as we develop the skills for the first five or six years that's when the nurturing changes into trying to teach the child how to behave and what to do and don't touch that and don't eat this and don't do this and that don't 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 is actually now built up stored up and remembered And we become critical of ourselves. So we have a whole lot of don'ts that are built into the mind. And when we are uh, just waking up and only have a little bit of sati, that stupidity of you're doing it wrong, criticism will likely to occur. So be careful of that because that's going to be a big issue for you for a long time that you're critical when you could be nurturing to yourself. So think of it as nurturing. And these, uh, this word critical and nurturing comes out of TA uh, where Byrne uh, is talking about the parent ego state. The Buddha refers to this as Silabhata Paramasa or the second fetter or the second underlying tendency. So actually, he's talking about it not as an underlying tendency of, of the instinctual brain, but he's talking about it as, an, as kind of an instinctual behavior that has been learned over many, many generations and is stored that way, but not in the reptilian brain, but rather in the mammalian cortex. That's where all of our language and concepts are stored. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where all of our rules, all of our rights, rules, rituals, shoulds, woulds, coulds, have dos, uh, perfections, uh, rights and wrongs, and all of that is stored. And it's stored in um, an instinctual way, in the sense that this is what we would call nesting instinct or herding instinct. That we go all, it's our socialization, in fact except that our socialization is not taught through nurturing, it's taught through criticism. And so when the kids go to school, they say, uh, the teachers will say, sit down and learn your ABCs. 
draw your A, draw your B, draw your C. She'll go along and any kid that's having daydreams or enjoying his moment or doodling with his paper and the preacher teacher will freak out. Or if it's a preacher, he'll freak out even more. And that freak out is what we learn. And so then when we uh, are meditating and we find that the mind has wandered away from the breath, we kind of have a mini freak out. Because we're acting stupid. We don't recognize how dangerous that is to be critical of ourselves. Well, guess what? You've been critical of yourself for so many years now. Everybody does it. Now it's the time to become nurturing. Okay. Or, or another way of saying it, which is actually quite funny, and that is you've talked to yourself, for years, you've been talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. How do we do that? Ah, wake up. Oh, yeah, I see the hindrances. Out they go. Well, I'm glad I don't have to think about that, Susie. Well, I'm yep. glad I don't have to write that email right now. Well, I'm glad that I don't have to go to work. <laughs> I can just sit here or lay here in bed and just enjoy the moment. That's how. Is by talking ourselves into this is nice. Wow, what a beautiful day it is. Can I give you one example that I had um, earlier on that I thought was really interesting? Because this came at a time when I was like, I think I was having a, a good time being able to throw out hindrances. But... I had seen this uh, this thing pop up on my phone, and it was a text, and it said something like, "Like I hope none of you weren't in the car on this uh, this overturned car." Um, it was like my family group text. So they were saying like they saw a car like turned over on like maybe a highway where like they were driving at, and they're like, "I hope it was none of you." And then I just saw that I was like, "Okay," I just like disregarded it, like went to do my meditation. And then it kind of popped into my mind, like, oh, what if that was my mom? And I, I was like, I started feeling bad. Like, I, I felt like I felt something, like I located it, like, in my chest. And then um, I said, you know what? Like, wait a minute. Like, I can, I can throw this one out. <laughs> like, I can throw this one out. But uh, I noticed that it was, like, a little bit more potent than some of the other hindrances that I, I come up with. So I, I gave it a name. I was like, okay, Mr. Turd. Like we did before, <laughs> Mr. Turd. I started breathing with it, and I, and I noticed I came to a point where I was like, you know, I I really do believe I could throw this out, but then a suck a second voice came in and it said kind of like, that's, you know, you you supposed to you're supposed to feel bad like that's your mom like that would be you know like that's your mom like what if it really is her that's like not good, but then you know I I came in with some wisdom I would say as I said like. You know, me, I don't, I don't have to feel this way. Like, me feeling bad about it, even if that did happen, like, wouldn't help the situation. Right. Even if it happened, you can't help by feeling bad. Exactly. And, like, after that, I was kind of... And yet, the... look at how much it's built into the culture. Mm -hmm. That when somebody has, when they're sick, we feel sorry for them. Or when we apologize, instead of saying, I did wrong... I screwed that up, and I offer an apology. No, we don't say that. What do we say? I'm sorry. Now, uh, recognizing that we've done wrongdoing, that's, that's important. 
But if, in fact, we're a Dhamma dude, we are actively and gladly seeking out our wrongdoing because we learn from our mistakes. But if we avoid our mistakes, if we don't want to admit that we've done wrong, or if we do do wrong and then we have to feel sorry because we've done wrong, then we don't want to feel sorry. And so we will deny that we've done wrong. This is part of our culture that we're supposed to be feel sorry and say that we feel sorry. And that what we're doing is in that regard is, is that, okay, I've already punished myself enough. You don't have to. By me saying that I'm sorry, that absolves you of the responsibility of beating my butt. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, <laughs> that, in, that in so fact, the apo- in the time, sorry. go ahead. I was going to say, so the apology is different from the sorry. Right. A real apology, a heartfelt apology is to to bind friendship, not to bind people into a mutual pity party. Mm. Yeah. Or into like a a victim mm -hmm. versus, you know, both of them are victims. At that point, I've done him wrong. He's a victim of what I've done wrong. And now I realize that I've done wrong and I'm sorry for what I did. And now I'm a victim too. And everybody's a victim. Yeah. But if I do wrong and I know that I did wrong and I recognize that I did wrong, I can actually offer him a nice gift and an apology and we can be good friends. And no pity party needed. Okay, so this is the kind of way that we begin to look at at insight, that even when we've done wrong, that's just merely an opportunity to improve. So when the mind wakes up enough of sati to recognize that the mind is in hindrances, beating ourselves and, and saying, oh, I'm sorry for having lost track of the breath is not the right practice. The yeah. right practice is just to drop that and say, never mind. Never mind, start again. Come back to the breath and start again. Now, in the process of of this starting again with that sati is number one, we are actually now going to be developing a lot of skills. One of the skills is the right effort. The one's right effort is to, in fact, to not allow those bad thoughts and feelings to continue. That we actually have to change the mind, change the content of the mind from something unwholesome to something wholesome. And feeling sorry for having the mind walked, uh, uh, wandered away from the breath, that's not a wholesome place to be. You don't want to have sorry and um, <clears throat> being critical of yourself. I just need to plug in my phone here, sorry. Yeah. So, with this... Uh, as a way of uh, operating, we now uh, can start to develop that habit of being happy and being cheerful. That even when we've done wrong, we can do that happily and cheerfully. But we want to make sure that uh, we recognize that this is wrong because it's harming people. 
So all of that goes back then to the first noble truth, that what is this uh, dukkha? Because Mr. Turd will come up in all forms, many, many different uh, situations, uh, which we can say. Uh, so in the practice of Anapanasati, as we said, it's a group of skills to be developed. And that uh, the place, let us say it this way, the first and the third noble truth is bas basically just merely an investigation. Is this suffering or is this not suffering? That's all that it takes. But the second and the fourth noble truth there's quite a lot to them. The, uh, the path uh, to the end of uh, uh, dukkha in this present moment is clearly spelled out and is a set of tools or skills to be developed. The second noble truth is a deeper thing. It's deeper into wisdom and that uh, ultimately it... Uh, winds up as the teaching of what is called dependent origination or Paticca Samuppada, which actually shows how the mind starts off in ignorance and winds up in dukkha. So the fourth noble truth is the path to the end of suffering. Is that what you said? The right or the method to get out of it right now. Hmm. You see, when we think of it as a path, now it's got a time frame on it. We've got to walk down this path, and when we get to the end of the path, we get our delicious goodie, right? The answer is no, this is not a path. This is a method. The path is this just is a, a method. This is the method of getting that goodie right now. <laughs> yeah, to just throw out the hindrance, like just get rid of it. Exactly. All right. So let's discuss... Um, there is in several suttas this group, but the place that I found it first, and it's so powerful, is in sutta number 39. Uh, and this is uh, not just the hindrances themselves, but how the hindrances affect us. And so there, for the five hindrances, there's five analogies. But these five analogies do not have an exact one-to-one -one correspondence to each of the hindrances. But whether we can say that this analogy fits two of those hindrances, and that and uh, this analogy fits several hindrances, et cetera, like that. Okay, and we can actually start putting those connections together. But let's go through these five analogies first. The first one is that you're sick. You're in bed or worse, you're in the hospital. And then you get better and you check out of the hospital. Getting the, uh, the mind free from hindrances is like being sick with some old past thing. And when you throw that hindrance out, it's like checking out of the hospital. Good to go. Not sick anymore. Uh, the second example is about prison that when we are in, in prison, in physical prison, we have no freedom to go anywhere. We have to accept, whether we like it or not, everything that's going on. And often we are a prisoner to our own minds that we can't escape. And when we are stuck in hindrances and can't get out, 
that's the same as being in prison and being able to get free from prison. Then we can go and do as we please. We can find pleasure. When we're in, ple- in prison, the whole point of prison, the way that they're operated, is no pleasure. Yeah. So, so this hard. is kind of like, this is an examination of first and third noble truth, because you're looking at this is suffering, prison is suffering, being free from suffering, you're out of prison. Exactly. Precisely okay. so. The third and then, analogy. And then a fourth would be escape from Alcatraz, right? The plan, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're right. And then the fourth is escape. Exactly. Right. If we got to get out of Alcatraz, that means that we got to learn the place very, very well. We got to find every possible escape route so that we can optimize them. So, yes, exactly. We got to plan our escape. That's exactly the correctly the way to look at it. Except that that plan can be implemented very quickly and we can escape very quickly. So, um, the third one is um, the indentured servant. And the example is is that uh, um, the king's attendant has to get up before the king does. He has to lay out the clothing. So, when the, uh, when the king wakes up, he uh, has the clothing and he uh, helps him dress um the food is served and the attendant is there to serve the food and the last thing all day long he's in servant of the king and after the king goes to bed and goes to sleep finally the servant can also go to bed and go to sleep but throughout the day he actually has a job to do and he has uh um but if he just merely walked out of the palace, he could escape. So it was like uh, he did something wrong and the king fired him. And now he's free. So look at the way that we live our lives. That we Sometimes we uh, are kind of indentured to the job in the sense that we've got mortgages, we've got payments, we've got a house, and all of that kind of stuff. And because of, of all of our property is now the king and is ordering us around, we've got to go work all day long. Yep. In order to service the king. The that's fourth a, that's point. <laughs> right. <laughs> it? Right. If I if I don't have any boss, then I don't have anything to do. Very and true. often we and often we uh, ignorantly, we think that, oh, if I buy that house, I will have great freedom. It'll be really a joy to own my own property. Guess what? You don't. The bank does. You live in the bank's house, and the bank's going to come get it as soon as their first opportunity. Yep. That happened in 2008 by the millions. A lot of people thought they owned their house and they worked and slaved hard. And then they were so much suffering when they lost that house, when in fact all they lost was a boss. Yeah. I'm in real estate, so I would know. You know what I'm talking about exactly. Yeah. So, um, funny that I chose that particular analogy of the king (laughs) being the house. Synchronicity. Synchronicity, precisely. 
Okay. The, th the fourth one is actually related to this in the sense of being in debt. Mm -hmm. Imagine that you are in debt and that uh, for maybe a business deal and that you uh, borrowed the money, you bought the, the property and then you later sold the property for a profit and you're out of debt and you've got enough proceeds to feed the family and boy, doesn't it feel good to be out of debt? Well, guess what? The hindrance of wanting something is like being in debt. And we have to pay off the feeling of wanting by buying that thing or getting that thing. And so we're constantly feeling like that we're in debt, that we've got to pay something off. We've got to go get something, got to go get something done. So you can see how the debt and the servant or the boss uh, and, the, and the king are really interrelated in these hindrances, just like um, uh, the restless mind will give rise to wanting things. And so the hindrances are all interrelated. Now, the last analogy is the analogy that you're out on a, on a trip. Um, the example is a, uh, a caravan in the desert and that you finally reached the oasis or you finally reached home and you've reached home with all of your baggage, all your belongings, and that you feel com complete and secure and now you can relax. Out on the road, it's dangerous. The thieves are out there, uh, camels can get sick, all kinds of problems can happen when you're out on a journey. Now, I've actually watched that happen in real life because I live on an island and occasionally, like once a year, we have to go over to the other island for the visa. But when I go over there, the only thing that I'm carrying is the very papers that I need for that visa. But I get on this uh, uh, huge, expensive, high-speed catamaran with all the tourists, and every one of them has a big bag in the back bigger bag in the back and a big bag in the front and then they're carrying a suitcase on rollers and sometimes they've also got a stroller with a kid in it and look at all of this baggage uh -huh. and so when they're standing around for the boat they got to watch the baggage when they're getting their ticket they got to watch the baggage when they're on, getting on the boat, they've got to carry all of that baggage. And when they get to the boat, they've got to put the baggage up in the front where all the baggage goes. And guess what? Now, everybody's got to have an eye on the front of that to make sure that their bags are going to be okay. We're constantly looking after our baggage. Mm -hmm. But when we finally arrive home, many people do this. Say when they arrive home, they set that suitcase or their backpacks down and they go take a nap. <laughs> and they don't even bother to unpack. Yeah. What was in those suitcases is not even important enough to unpack it. <laughs> Sometimes people will move from house to house and, and it'll be months before they finally unpack. That's so funny because you're describing me right now. I recently moved. <laughs> it took me a while to get unpacked. Mm hmm So... That whole idea then about being out on uh, out in the wilderness and having a bunch of baggage and worries, we do that mentally. 
we think that in fact that we're out there trying to protect our our baggage this is what daydreaming and and worry is all about is worried about something worried about all the baggage well guess what you're home now you can relax you don't have to unpack that baggage (laughs) you can just leave it and so in this regard these are the same as the five hindrances that sick is very much like uh, sloth and torpor in the sense that we're tired. That in fact, the words sick and tired go together a lot. That people yeah. can't just be tired of something, they got to be sick of it too, okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when the mind gets tired, it's kind of an illness. It's kind of like being sick. But by taking a few deep breaths and getting the body oxygenated and getting uh, some of the pollutants out, because in fact, a lot of the stuff of, of, uh, let us say, tiny little fragments of amino acids will stay in the blood until it's finally cleaned out by the kidneys or uh, in the lungs. That the lungs actually breathe out a whole lot more stuff than just carbon dioxide, but even the carbon dioxide is an acid in the blood. That this is, in fact, how the reptilian brain works. It's it's almost a truly automatic pilot in the sense that there's just a little mechanism in the the brain that can can test the pH level of the blood. And when the pH level of the blood is too high, guess what? The automatic breathing mechanism, like when you're climbing stairs or climbing up a hill or whatever like that, and it will automatically make you just start breathing hard. Right. Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, we're going to start doing that wisely, consciously. We're going to actually start lowering that pH uh, level in the blood before it reaches that astronomical level where uh, the panting survival mechanism kicks in. And we're going to start taking long, slow, deep breaths. And not only are we oxygenating, but we're cleaning the blood. And one of the things that you've noticed, have you ever been under the covers with with a friend, the two of you there under the covers and both of you breathing? Guess how long that lasts? Not very long. Not very long. Why? Because the uh, the air in that uh, under those covers gets stinky. Mm, yeah. It or you gets run out stinky. of you start to feel claustrophobic. Well, the feeling of claustrophobic is because of the other stuff of feeling stinky. That in fact the air gets stinky because of the out breath more so than it is robbing the oxygen. In fact, uh, the oxygen level will probably go down from, say, 20% down to 18 or maybe 16%. No big deal. But we still want out from under those covers because the out-breath is stinky. Now, that doesn't mean that all bad breath comes from, that there's certainly a whole lot of bacteria, and in fact, uh, there's a whole industry trying to sell you toothpaste and mouth gargles and toothbrushes and 10,000 things like that. But basically, the really stinky part uh, not not the offensive foul odors of uh, the bacteria in the mouth, but the exhale is proving that we actually not we put out a whole lot more than just carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide you can't 
detect that. The molecule of carbon dioxide is far too small for the nose to be able to detect it. No, there's larger things that come out with the breath, little pieces of amino acid. In that regard, it's exactly correct for someone to, uh, 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 if, if you've got a friend who's really angry and you can say, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. To th start throwing some of that stuff out. The um, uh, adrenaline, the cortisol, all of that stuff can be thrown out. So this is the whole idea that we can actually get better with the hindrances of being sick and tired and, and uh, drowsy. We can pick that up by consciously taking a few deep breaths. And in fact, we want to do that in the sense of every in-breath we note that in-breath is a long in-breath. That's the point of sati. Every out-breath, we note this is a long out-breath. This is sati. And, and, and when, so you say, when, when you say every, obviously as much as you can remember, but... When we're, when we're practicing, once you get it going, don't, don't let it up. This is the continuum okay. part. Okay. That uh, getting ourselves into that state uh, is one skill. And then maintaining that state is a, is a separate skill. And so I'm, I'm actually now talking about that separate skill that once we start uh, uh, taking long, deep breaths, we have that intention that I'm going to watch this breath, not the whole breath, but just uh, long enough to have sati on it or to understand it, that this is a long, deep breath. I got you. Yep. Okay, there is in fact a whole lot to do in Anapanasati, a huge amount of stuff to do. We've got Vedana, we've got Chitta, we've got Dhammanupasana, we've got all of that stuff to do, and it's all going to be done within one in-breath and one out-breath. So therefore, it's a good idea for the, the one in-breath and one out-breath to be very long, so that we can get a lot of stuff done. On that in-breath, you can experience the body. You can experience actually any anxiety that you have. And on that out breath, you can relax it and let it out. Breathing in, you breathe in joy. And breathing out, you relax, relax. Breathing in nourishment. Or if you're a Christian, breathing in God. In comes God and out goes the devil. And in comes God and out goes the devil. In that breathing. <laughs> In comes the oxygen and out goes carbon dioxide and crap. And so I'll, this I'll is. I'll tell you, I, I was having an experience kind of where, you know, just like how I was feeling was that the joy that I was having, it felt like I was just like bathing in it, like kind of like breathing in, as you said, just like bathing in that joy is kind of how I would put it. Yes. So this is the way to practice. We do not, we practice in a way to making the, the mind bright and shiny and fit for work and fit for an investigation. But most of the Western mentality about meditation is, is it's something that you do still and quiet and you go deep in meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, deep into meditation is actually a kind of a prison. And not only that, but it's kind of an illness in the sense that this uh, deep meditation happens after someone's been sitting for a long time which means now their mind is tired. They're not breathing well, the mind is tired, they go into a kind of a half sleep, half daydreamy state, and they think that that's meditation and that is where they're going to get um, 
uh, insight and that that's where the bliss will come from. If I sit enough for hours like that, maybe 10,000 hours, maybe 30,000 or 100,000 hours of sitting meditation of being in a stupor, mm-hmm. and then bliss comes. Is that is that considered the second, like the other jhanas? Is that what you're saying? A or? lot of people do not know what the jhanas are, and so they confuse these deep mind states mm-hmm. as jhana. Okay. But in fact, the jhanas are very bright, open. You have lots and lots of input. And in fact, the higher the jhanas go, the more input that you have, and the less the mind is in operation. And we'll talk about how that works. But I will introduce you to this, and that is, is that we want to develop wisdom at the point of contact and what i mean by developing wisdom at a point of contact is anytime anything impacts you you're going to have a feeling about it if you are wise at that point when things impact you then the feelings that come up will be wise for instance if you don't like something and you don't like it ignorantly then it's quite likely for that to lead to grasping and clinging in the form of anger. But if you are wise at that point of contact, when you hear, let us say, the baby cry, or maybe the, uh, not baby cry, that's nurturing. You hear the kid, you you hear the kid having a tantrum. Okay. Okay. What does mom normally do when the kid has a tantrum? A lot of women will raise their right hand like this. You know what you know what that means? Yeah, they're gonna hit him. Yeah, yeah. That if you don't shut up, I'm gonna hit you. Okay. Well, what is that? That means that the mother does not like the kid having a tantrum. But instead of not liking the kid having a tantrum and recognizing that the child needs nurturing now, she mm-hmm. becomes critical. She becomes angry. She has no sati. Mm. So we need to become mm. nurturing at the point of contact. Yes, and the way that we do that is through wisdom. We have to wake up. That's our sati. To become wise at the point of contact of our feelings. So that when we like something, that does not mean that we have to go pursue it. Mm. We can just like it. Yeah. Okay. Now, in fact, I'm actually introducing to you now the teaching of Paticca Samuppada. This is how the mind works. If you are wise at that point of contact, then when the feelings arise for it, you don't necessarily have to raise your hand and, and perhaps even slap that child. And that you can recognize that when the child is having a tantrum, it's because normally he's not getting what he wants. And when mom raises that hand and starts yelling at the kid, now he's got two emotions that are directly in conflict with each other, both fear and desire. And so the kid's really messed up then. So so what is the the wisdom how do we sort of develop this wisdom and like is it kind of just seeing the potential danger in your action and maybe seeing other people's perspectives is that that okay you just touched on two points that we're that we can talk about in great detail at a later time one is to see other people's viewpoints this is in fact right noble view 
Okay. And there are three kinds of views in the Buddhist dispensation. One is wrong view. Wrong view says basically that I can do what I want to do. There is no mother. There is no authority. There is no um, uh, gods or devils. In it, and I can get away with anything. Okay. So I can get away with it is the catchphrase of the wrong view. Because nobody gets away with anything. If he wants something and he's shoplifted, he's going to have anxiety and tension while he's shoplifting. He's not going to get away with it. He knows he's not going to get away with it. But we still, that's part of our stupidity. We need to wake up to, wait a minute, you can't get away with it. All right. So, on the other side of that, the parent or the authority is now going to say, actually, our society itself is going to say, Oh, no, you can't get away with it. And we're going to have a police force and we're going to build prisons and we're going to put schools up and we're going to make sure that you can't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're going to tell you stories and tell you lies to prove that you can't get away with it. And that's when the, the law of karma comes in. The law of karma states that good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results. And every little kid knows that sometimes he can get away with it. We know we can get away with it. At least we can get away from the tools or the, the, um, uh, the rules. Yeah. But, but right noble view is to recognize by looking at everybody's point of view and seeing it from a higher point of view, we recognize for sure nobody gets away with it. Everybody is responsible. That if, if, if mom doesn't beat the kid anymore and he gets up and he goes off and he lives his life, he's going to be beating on himself just like his mom did mentally. And so we don't get away with wrong behavior, but we can, in fact, uh, gain greatly from it. So that whole idea then that we were talking about earlier of sorry in an apology, that's it. That's uh, the communication between the um, ordinary right view and wrong view. Wrong view says I can get away with it. Ordinary right view says, no, you can't get away with it. And so ordinary right view wants to punish you. And so you say, I don't want to get punished. So I'll say, I'm sorry. That in fact, saying I'm sorry often gets us away with it. I feel bad. Therefore, you don't have to punish me. I already got punished. I punished myself. And guess what? Now we off we go punishing ourselves for any and every little old thing for the whole rest of our lives. And that's a favorite game that students play in the beginning of meditation is to punish themselves when the mind wanders away from the uh, breath instead of, aha, caught it again. Yay. We can do this. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that we begin to look at it. So that right view is important. That, that we begin to see things from other perspectives. We recognize, in fact, you could go so far as to say that right noble view is another way of looking at compassion itself. Okay. 
okay? That compassion. But guess what? Compassion, just like everything else, starts at home. If I can't be compassionate with myself, how can I be compassionate with others? Especially when they're out doing the very same things that I'm not giving myself compassion for doing. <laughs> so throw them out. Throw out the hindrances compassionately. Right, okay. Here's an example of that. It's an interesting one. But who hates fat people the most? Whenever this guy sees a fat person, he just gets disgusted and he doesn't want to look at them. Especially fat girls. Don't want to have anything to do with them. Who hates fat people? Uh, the fat guy. The fat guy, okay. <laughs> fat people hate fat people. Really? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. every time he sees that fat person over there, it reminds him of his own fat. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're not compassionate with ourselves. We're not compassionate with them. And, and, and that's just a simple example. And it goes everywhere. And so uh, real compassion then is also right noble view to do the investigation and the investigation is to see the dangers and see the harmfulness of the hindrances and to throw them out. So that we're now in this moment free from debt. We're at home with with no need to unpack. Yeah, we're out of prison. We got no king or boss to uh, 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 to push us around, and we're not sick. Okay. So these are these are the hindrances that the Buddha says that uh, uh, that we have them kind of as a group, even one, though there's five classes, they all fit together. Yeah. What well, one note on the compassion part before we leave that, or the nurturing aspect. I'm trying to look at it in terms of practice and like what I'm actually doing, what I'm actually thinking during my practice. And so one way I'm thinking about like approaching it, because I feel like there's two different ways. I've heard you talk about like the sort of like throwing out, like throwing out the the patron at the bar. It was like unruly. We don't want him in. I like that, but maybe it's not so compassionate. But another way to think about it would be um, like a child that's like, you know, treading off maybe like a baby in a in a in a um what do you call it a crib and he's like gonna crawl out and hurt himself or something like that like no you don't want to go there like come back you know kind of like that way <laughs> i have a story that i'll tell you in that regard and this happened many many years ago i don't even remember when nor do i remember how i was dressed so it may have been when i was a monk but I do know that this was the situation, that there was a bunch of nuns from America going to some country in Asia and bringing back babies for adoption. Okay. And they, had, they were outnumbered. I think that there were three nuns and five babies on this long overhaul flight. Wow. And the, and the, uh, the stewardesses tried to help these nuns with these babies, but these, ba these nuns, guess what? Nuns are not mommies. They're right. nuns. 
Yeah. These was, this was the wrong crowd to send after five babies. Three nuns was the wrong group. At least have one um, uh, child care specialist. Mm-hmm. But no. Okay, so nobody knew what they were doing. And the, and the, uh, the, the, the people, the passengers, were becoming annoyed because of all the noise and commotion that was being made, especially one baby at least was crying, bellering nonstop, at least one. Mm-hmm. All the time. So what I did was I got up and I went over to one of the nuns who was trying to do two kids at once. And one of them was just bellering. And I says, let me have this kid. It's OK. You can trust me. And yeah. so I take it. I rock the kid and I play with it and get it settled down. And within 10 minutes, these three nuns did not have one child to hold. Because the moms and the women got over their bad feelings about those brats being so noisy. And they saw me come and take one. Mm-hmm. And that's, that solved the problem. The moms in the, on that plane took those five kids and nurtured them. Those five babies, actually, they were infants. There was not one of them that was a toddler yet. They were all in diapers. Oh, wow. And they were all bellowing. So that's a, that's ex- actually an example. If you give people um, the out of compassion rather than frustration and anger, they would take it. This is actually, I should remember this story more. I haven't told it in, in years. It's just something out of the deep past. But it's a really clear example of um, how to deal with things. Because all of the people on that plane... Everyone was annoyed. Everyone was annoyed. Mm-hmm. And it, just one little idea, one little spark, one little point of sati, maybe I can care for one of these babies, and the next thing you know, problem solved. Were you annoyed at the time? No. <laughs> no. If, if I had been annoyed, I <laughs> would not have done that, right? I would have been like everybody yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. So um, something was coming to mind with that, which was, this is kind of reminding me of a phrase like, go first, in a way, where, you know, like, I guess you, you go first, like in your mind, like your prefrontal cortex comes in, Sati, and says, this is how I'm going to treat you. And then maybe after that point, you know, you, you develop that skill, that habit, and now you're constantly coming in with that nurturing aspect. And maybe, like, I don't want to put it into magical terms, but, like, you just get used to being more compassionate um, towards your mind, and then it, that helps your development a lot. That's you develop your skills. That's the whole point. It's not magic. Yeah. Uh, that is to remember, to wake up, to act wisely, to do something appropriate here rather than something inappropriate. Yeah. Yep. That that plane trip I'm thinking was like 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. <laughs> wow. Planes were a different <laughs> environment back then, huh? Oh, sure. People smoked. Smoking on the plane. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. Well, let's finish this talk up. I think that we've gotten some more inspiration for you 
to recognize um, that you can, in fact, see these hindrances very clearly. When you wake up, you can take a look at them. But the normal thing that people do when they catch the hindrances, they just put more on. We actually have to come out to wake up fully. One quick thing before we get off is that I notice that like sometimes I'll go in with a a more vigorous like I try and like really like wake up like bigger you know so, uh-huh. or maybe sometimes I'll come in with like a, a that's a, right a, a muted think one. about that wake up bigly yeah okay wake up bigly yeah because we're going to brighten the mind I mean we're this is not <sighs> kind of meditation <laughs> this is got it. <laughs> there we go all right <laughs> nice. okay Kate, we'll see you later see you later thank you okay bye-bye bye